Our sermon text this morning is from Joel chapter 2, verses 23 through 32. Just a few words of introduction before I begin. Joel is one of those minor prophets, but uh, he's really got a lot of good news. There's a lot of promise in Joel, a lot of, um, a lot of excitement that he has, um, not a lot of condemnation like some of the other ones. And uh, this is a passage that has inside of it a really strong metaphor. This metaphor of locusts that have come and eaten some crops. It appears earlier in Joel, uh, in chapter 1, and then is revisited here in Joel chapter 2. And there's this sense that uh, locusts have come and eaten the crops of the people of God. Not just for one season or one year, but evidently for multiple years. For an agricultural society, that's particularly devastating, as we understand. No crops equals no food. You have to eat food that you stored up, or you have to spend resources buying food from somewhere else. So it's really cataclysmic to have a swarm of locusts, and to have that year after year, to put the work into the soil, to watch the plants grow, and have the locusts come before the harvest time is really discouraging. Now these locusts... um, are described using four different words in the Hebrew. And there are actually four different words for locusts in Hebrew. And scholars aren't sure if this is four different species of locusts, in which case these different species of locusts may come at different times during the harvest, uh, or they may eat different parts of the plant. Or it could be that these four words for locusts describe one species of locusts in all of its stages of its life cycle, starting with the caterpillar and all the different stages as as they get older the young and the mature, and those locusts might eat different parts of the plant. Either way you look at it, this repetition of four different kinds of locusts, or the same locust in its four stages of its life, represents sort of literarily that God is talking about a calamity that's thorough. It's it's fourfold. It comes from all sides. It's, It's complete. And for the people at that time, they didn't have sprayers or pesticides for their fields, there was really nothing they could do. They could swat away a few uh, locusts, but when thousands or millions of them descend, uh, it's just a matter of sitting back and watching as all that work goes up. There's also a sense in our text that we'll see that God is the one who sent those locusts. God sent them because of some sin of his people. Another question to ask about these locusts is, are they real locusts? Are these real locusts and real crops? Or do the locusts stand for something else? It's quite possible that they stand for something else. It could be an invading army that came and uh, captured the people and carried them away to exile in Babylon. We believe Joel was written after the exile and return. So it was Joel looking back with God's people on the years that were lost uh, in exile. Or it could be some other kind of catastrophe. You remember from the book of Exodus that locusts were one of the plagues that God sent on the people of Egypt. So there's that that I'd like to ask you to pay attention to while we read what the locusts mean. And then um, the second part of the reading today, you'll probably recognize, and that's starting from verse 28 on, this passage of Scripture is quoted in its entirety in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2. When the apostles gather uh, after Jesus ascends into heaven, The apostles gather, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, and they begin to speak in languages that they don't know. 
The people there ask for explanations. How are you able to do this? Peter points to this passage here and quotes it verbatim, pretty much, and says, It was prophesied in the book of Joel that in the later days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And young men will have dreams, and old people will prophesy. So we'll read that. But just know that what you're about to hear read is something that's very central to the life of the Christian faith as we look at Pentecost and forward. So with that introduction, let's look at Joel chapter 2, verse 23. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts, and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a promise in our scripture today that God is able to redeem time. He's able to redeem time. Now, we're familiar with God redeeming all sorts of other things. God redeems sinners. God redeems us when we go to him. God, uh, the, the imagery that we have of Jesus on the cross is of somebody who goes to redeem captives who have been set free. That word redeem has this sense of going into an enemy camp and paying some price and, and winning the release of some captives. Only a few places in the scriptures, though, does it kind of hint at the idea that God is able not only to re redeem a sinner, but also to redeem the time that was lost to sin. This is a beautiful aspect of the gospel. It's one that we don't think about that much. But honestly, as I get older, I think about it more and more because I have less and less time, and I'm more cognizant of the time that I have lost and I'm more interested in how God can redeem whatever time I have that is lost. We're going to look at what it means to lose time in just a little bit. But that's our promise for today in this passage, is that 
God is able to redeem not just sinners, but time lost in sin. Let's look again at these locusts. Uh, We have this reading in uh, Joel chapter 2, if you look at verse 25, where God says, I will repay you. That word repay could also be translated redeem. I will redeem for you the years that the locusts have eaten. This sense that there were years where God's judgment on his people was like a swarm of four different kinds of locusts. Thoroughgoing, complete, total destruction, catastrophic loss of productivity and all the things that bring life. And that God had visited upon his people that punishment because of their sin. From Israel's history, we understand this as a time when they were following other gods, when they were making poor political alignments with other nations and not trusting God. You read the prophets over and over again. You find them all telling God's people, return to God. Return to him. You're off somewhere else. You're wasting your time. And the people didn't listen until finally God's presence departed from his people. And he let a foreign invading army come and take them away, and they, were, they spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. And to them, that 70 years, as Joel is looking back on it with them, may have looked like lost time. 70 years without our land. 70 years outside our home. 70 years where our lives were feeling like they were on hold, where we were being punished. I think a great analogy for this would be uh, hockey. Do you guys like watching hockey? Some of you like watching hockey. It's really just a fight with some rules, right? But what happens if if you commit some egregious foul? Where do you get sent? The penalty box, and for a certain amount of time. And while you're in the penalty box, you can't play. Not only that, your team is short a player, and that's a huge advantage to the other time. Can you, team, can you imagine, what's it called when, there, when there's two in the penalty box on one t- team and none in the other? A power play, right? Because the other team has the run of it. They're, they're going to score a lot of goals during that time, during the power play. Lost time leads to lost all sorts of other things in hockey and in life. People looking back on the judgment of 70 years of exile being conquered by their enemies And there was a word that kind of gets associated with that in this time, is that they were humiliated. They were taunted by their enemies, and they were put to shame because they weren't able to defend their own country. They were put to shame because God's hand of protection was removed from them, and they were taken off. The ones that didn't die were taken off into exile. The good news in Joel is that God is telling them, all of this is going to get turned around. I'm going to repay you. I'm going to redeem the years that were lost to the locusts. I'm going to redeem the time that you've lost. But there's more. If you look at verse 26, he says, there's going to be an abundance. I'm going to give you plenty to eat until you're full. You're going to have more than you need. It's not just the, the, the harvest from now on isn't going to be just enough to, to get by, to survive on. You're going to be full. You'll, be, you'll have everything you want. Um, the, the vats will overflow. It's a beautiful imagery, isn't it? Of all the produce that comes in, it fills, it fills to overflowing all the containers that they have for the harvest. At the end of verse 26, and all throughout 27, though, is really the hinge, the center 
of this passage. Because God zeroes in there on the one thing that's really plaguing his people. Never again will my people be shamed or put to shame. Never again will my people be shamed. And then again at the end of verse 27, never again will my people be shamed. When something gets repeated once after another in two verses, you know it's an important concept. It's important to pay attention to what's going on. Shame, in, the, in that sense, where this word is, could have a wide range of meaning. It could mean, I'm embarrassed because of some social mistake I made. It could be that small. That's, that's one way of talking about shame. But on the far other end, shame is this deep sense of discomfort and guilt over a sin that I've committed. Now, honestly, I'll tell you, I felt this shame. I, in fact, I feel it every day. I don't know. I, I, I Probably every day I say something I wish I hadn't. That's a small thing. I can get past that pretty easily. But in life, we have these big ones, don't we? We have this deep feeling of loss and discomfort and sadness over a sin that we've committed that has caused us to lose time or lose friends or lose our relationship with God. And it creates this cloud around us that we can't see through. And we know what the locusts feel like. We feel the locusts coming in at that time and eating up what we have so that it's all consumed in this shame. Joel says this. You're going to have plenty to eat. I'm going to pay back for the years the locusts have eaten. Never again will my people be put to shame. And then in verse 27, this is how it happens. Then you will know that I am in Israel. Another way of saying that is that I am in the midst of Israel. God is saying, after that time, I will be present with my people. This is how it works. God in his holiness, God in his glory, shame can't touch that. Shame can't attach to that. Shame can't exist in a radius around it. And if God puts himself down in the midst of his people, their shame is going to be driven out and they're going to be kept there. That's how it works. That's what it looks like. And this very much in Joel in the Old Testament is pointing very much forward to the New Testament. Where in the New Testament do we understand that God comes to be in the midst of his people? so that he can take away their shame. Nowhere else but in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate in God coming to be among his people, to live among them, to be born among them, to die among them, to share everything that they have, their hunger and their fear and their thirst and their pain and their sorrow. All of that is God being in the midst of his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no shame around Jesus. It never attaches itself to him. Even though he's with a lot of people who are told they should be ashamed of themselves. It cost God something though to redeem time. It costs God something. It, it says, I'll repay you. If God's going to repay for that time, he's going to have to pay it out of some source. Some source. It costs God to drive shame away. It costs God to redeem in the world. 
There's an example of this that I think is really moving. We know the story about Lazarus, a friend of Jesus. He's sick, and his sister sends word to Jesus, hurry up, my brother's sick. If you get here in time, you can heal him. Simple. We hear that Jesus gets the message, and the gospel is very specific about this. So you can only assume that Jesus did this on purpose. Jesus heard the message that Lazarus was sick, and he stayed where he was for a few more days. Why did he do that? It's an interesting part of the gospel. Instead of running to where Lazarus was, he waited for a few days. He finally got there. Now, to most people, this could look like Jesus is a bad friend. You didn't come when you were needed. You came late. You should, if you're going to come late, you shouldn't come at all. Because as it turns out, Lazarus did die. And he had been in the grave for four days, which is, which is even longer than the people at that time thought the soul would inhabit the body after death. So there was no way. There was like dead, the first three days of dead, and then after that, dead, dead. Lazarus was dead, dead. And it just, there was no hope for him. He was in the ground. Or above the ground. The way they buried people was actually above the crown, a ground in a box called an ossuary. We'll talk about that some other time. So there Lazarus was in the ossuary. Um, Jesus comes, and his sister said, You're late. If you had only come here earlier, my brother would still be alive. You have lost time. That time is gone. It's past. It cost us something. It cost us the life of our brother. We wish you had shown up on time. This is one of the ways that Jesus and God redeem time. And it shows that it costs him something. We know what Jesus did next. We know what Jesus did next. We know that he raised Lazarus from the dead and in a way that pointed forward to his own resurrection. But here's something interesting. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he knew what a happy occasion that was. But upon hearing that Lazarus was dead, we get the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Who knows it? Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Why did Jesus weep if he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? It's like a quandary, right? It's a paradox. You're going to raise him from the dead. It's going to be a happy thing. Why are you crying now? Because God is in the midst of his people. And he feels what his people feel. And he identifies completely with what his people are in. Jesus felt sorrow. It cost him to see that his friend was dead. He entered completely in. And in the same way, when God is in the midst of his people and he redeems, it cost God not just sorrow, but tears and sweat and blood on the cross. It costs God to be in the midst of his people and to redeem them. It costs Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. And the cross costs God something to redeem our time and to redeem us. You may be asking, how can you redeem time? There's a few physicists in the room, I know. They'll probably tell you that time can't be lost. Well, maybe it could on a quantum level or something, I don't know. Uh, but even if it was lost, there probably is no way physically to get it back. Okay, let's just let's take all that and put that over here. Okay. Time can get lost when it's wasted in sin. 
Time can get lost when it's obsessed over something that we can't do anything about. Time can be lost doing something inconsequential when there's something far more significant that we could be about in the moment. There's a hundred ways that time can be lost. I think the most significant way that time is lost is time is lost when we're in shame because it paralyzes us. It keeps us centered on the past and focused on the past. How can God redeem that time? Well, one way, and this is great, is that if you've got some lost years in your life and you've grown as a result of them, you can look back on what you thought were lost years and your mind will change. You can reimagine those lost years and say, those were important years for me. Even though I felt lost in them, I now know that something was being prepared in me. And that's one way that God redeems time. Another way that God redeems time is he takes away shame. He takes away our focus on our past and our failures, and he gives us a new life. And in a way, he gives those years back. And what we're about to see next as we read the next passage, part of this passage is that God can redeem lost time by making time in the future far more effective and valuable. That's the, really the good news. Because what happens next? If you look at verse 28, my people won't be shamed in a way. I'm going to take away their shame. I'm going to be in their midst. And then this prophecy that we see Peter, the apostle Peter, quote on the day of Pentecost. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and your daughters, your future, your children, will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams the people in the past who are living out in the past. They're going to have God. God is going to redeem all of time. He's going to redeem the past. He's going to redeem the present. He's going to redeem the future by pouring his spirit out upon all flesh. Joel does a very interesting word play in here. The word for shame in Hebrew is very similar to the word for dryness or drought. And the answer to dryness or drought is this pouring out of the Spirit on God's people, almost like water coming down from heaven and bringing life. When we're done wasting time with shame and God takes it away because he's in our midst, he then opens us up to the freedom of living by the Spirit into a new phase of life that's so much more effective and amazing than the old part of our life. There's another scriptural example of this. We have the Apostle Paul. Paul recounts some of his own history uh, in various of his letters. Galatians, among others, we also get some of it in in the book of Acts. But we understand Paul was somebody who grew up deeply rooted in the Jewish faith and particularly in the law and in the teachings of the law, keeping of the law. He dedicated himself to the law which is why Romans is such an interesting thing to read and why he treats the law in such an interesting way. He's a scholar of the law. He knows it. Paul spends all this time learning about the law. And then he spends time persecuting the church because he thought that was the right thing to do because they weren't keeping the law and they were an affront to God. And then we know what happens next. On his way to Damascus to bring a few more Christians down for persecution, the Spirit, or Jesus Christ, and the Spirit both, confront him deeply and convert him. And Paul writes in Galatians that after that time, he had to go away for a while. 
could have been about three years, into the wilderness by himself to get right with God, to commune with God, and he did it. Then he had to go to the leaders in Jerusalem and make sure that he was preaching the same gospel as them, and that all took time. And only then, with the power of the Spirit, was Paul ready to go on these missionary journeys, which were far-reaching and amazing. Paul looks back on his life up until that moment, a life that he thought was blameless before God in terms of the law, a life spent, which he says, to his shame, he spent persecuting the church. That whole chunk of his life, and at that point it was far more than half of his life that he was looking back on. And he says, I count that all as rubbish. And rubbish is a nice word. All right, He uses a much stronger word than that in the Greek. I count it all as rubbish. He looks, now, maybe, I hope none of you in this room, but it's possible, could look back on more than half of your life and say, it was all rubbish. I had all the wrong priorities. I was worried about all the wrong things. I was spinning my wheels. I was wasting my time. I was barking up the wrong tree. Whatever you want to say. Even if you can say that about your life, look at what happens next for the Apostle Paul. He sets that all aside. It was rubbish. It was a loss. It's gone. And yet, through the Spirit, God redeems that life so that in what little life Paul had left, he became the most effective missionary that we've ever seen in the whole world. And pound for pound, except for the ministry of Jesus Christ, which probably lasted about three years, the 15 or 20 years of ministry that Paul did was far more effective than anyone we've ever heard of. Truly amazing what Paul did in the time that's left. That's one way that God redeems time. God redeemed the first 40 years of Paul's life in the 15 or 20 last years of Paul's life by what he did in it. Even at the end of his life, and we get this beautiful imagery from 2 Timothy of him saying goodbye and saying, I'm almost done. At the end of his life, he says, I'm so tired. I'm so worn out. I wish I could die. I'm ready to die. I really want to die. I want to go to God and be with him in heaven. That sounds pretty good right now. But for your sake, I will keep on living so that I can keep preaching the gospel. Somebody who has had their time redeemed would talk like that. Somebody who has had their time redeemed by God and infused by the Spirit would talk just like that. The last month of my life is going to be so full and so energetic for God. I'm not going to lie down, and I'm not going to die. And we think, even up to the very end, that Paul was witnessing and ministering for the gospel even if he was in prison, his life was full. What about us? Is there a section of your life you can look back on like Paul and say, that was rubbish. That was a waste. Is there some sin in your life or some relationship in your life or some deep sense of shame that you're still holding onto that's trapping you in the lost time of the past? 
Another way of asking that is, what are the locusts still eating in your life? What are they still nibbling on? Do we look back and say it was a waste, or I had the wrong priorities? I'd like to invite you to do something at this time. You close your eyes. Don't look at your neighbors. Put out your hands. In front of you, and whatever it may be that is trapping you in the lost time of the past, whatever shame you may feel, whatever sin that you struggle with, imagine that it is resting there in your two hands in front of you. And I want to ask you gingerly, ever so slightly, to raise your hands away from your body and toward God just a little bit. And say, dear God, I don't want to carry this anymore. I don't need to carry it anymore. Will you please take it from me? And we know that God and his goodness will gather that up and he'll nail it to the cross with his son, Jesus Christ. And it'll cost him to take us. It'll cost him. But he does it because he loves us. And there's a promise that comes when we do this. You can put your hands back and open your eyes if you like. The promise that follows is new freedom, new life, in the spirit out in this world. After these days, I'll pour out my spirit. And I can't even put it as well as Joel puts it. So all I'm going to do to end is read what Joel said. This is what God promises when we give all that up. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will know that I am in your midst and that I am the Lord your God. And I will pour out my spirit on you. And when you call on my name, you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you redeem our time at great cost to you, that you remove our shame, and that you live in our midst, and you free us to live life in your spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.